Hello, Doom Doom Bippers. This is Hoffcast number 82. And uh, this is a big one, you guys. This is a big one. We tackle uh, lots of questions around religion and faith. So buckle up and strap in. I hope you guys enjoy this talk. I wanted to tell you all my uh, date in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin for uh, February had to be moved. Sorry about that. But tickets should be honored. Just contact the club. Um, move to May 28th through 29th. So, uh, I hope to see you then at Skyline Comedy Club. And then March 19th and 20th, I'll be in the Phoenix area, Glendale, Arizona at Stir Crazy Comedy Club. I'm adding more dates. So, uh, keep on the lookout for that. Um, if you're not already subscribed to my YouTube channel, just search Nick Hoff on YouTube and hit that subscribe button. That helps. I post little clips from uh, the podcast and stand up and little sh funny shorts that I do. And I'll be ramping that up as we move forward. Um, my guest on the podcast this week is the head pastor at uh, First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska, Greg Allen Pickett. And that's the church I grew up in. And Greg wasn't there when I was uh, growing up, but he's there now, and I've gotten the opportunity to meet him uh, every time I go home. And we had a very interesting talk. We talked a lot about doubt, a lot about uh, doubt in faith and, and what role that plays in, in how he preaches and how he uh, you know handles himself. So I found it very interesting. I hope you guys do as well. Also, check out what he's got going on. Uh, he throws up a podcast every Monday with uh, the associate pastor that he works with, um, and it's called uh, the Monday Check-In Podcast. So it's like a half hour, and they talk about uh, different things that are going on in the world and how that relates back to the Bible. And then also check out his Living Waters uh, charity that he works with. It's really cool, you guys. We talk about it. So um, check out those two things. Follow me on all social media. I'll keep you posted with everything. Good Nick Hoff. Try and keep you entertained in these times. The vaccine's still rolling out, so hopefully we have a big tour this summer. Get back out on the road, making everybody laugh. Thank you for tuning in this week, and I hope you enjoy my conversation with Reverend Greg Allen Pickett. All right, welcome back to another episode of the Hoffcast. A uh, very special guest today, the pastor of First Presbyterian Church in Hastings, Nebraska, the church where I grew up, the church where I would roam the halls, digging down in the the underneath tunnels, the old Boy Scout rooms and stuff, and, and then climb up into the rafters. It was a place where I first learned about God, and and I'm lucky enough to have Greg Allen Pickett on the podcast here today. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate the opportunity, and I will tell you, Nick. Photos exist of you in this church doing things that, uh, <laughs> well, at some point. And there's also video. There's video evidence of uh, Nick's early performing career uh, in a couple of uh, Christmas pageants. And so uh, should yep. that evidence ever need to be leaked out for anyone, let me know. <laughs> Uh, make a nice donation to the church, and I'm happy to send you those videos of Nick uh, performing as an angel in a musical called Angels Aware. Oh yeah, uh, just 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 to put that out there. I still have to sing one of those songs from Angels Aware when I'm trying to remember the, the Ten, Ten Commandments. Commandments. That's how <laughs> I, I know the Ten Commandments too. 
Is from that song? Really? Because I was in Angels Aware when I was 12 years old. I was Michael the Archangel and I learned the Ten Commandments from that song. Same, same, same story, man. You had the big role, Michael. Is that what then pushed you into seminary? You're like, well, I got to carry this torch now. I mean, once you've been Michael the Archangel, (laughs) a senior pastor of a church is actually a step down. Right, right. People (laughs) are like, uh, you were, you were great when you were 12, but now come on. Yeah. Yeah, I we were just there. You you're not actively in church right now. You're you're still casting over Facebook, right? Correct. We call it stay-at-home worship. Right, but my family was lucky enough to come and do the candle lighting and then I was taking my kids throughout the halls and in the big uh fellowship hall where we used to have big dinners and stuff. Uh there are pictures of the go and serve groups, which are yep. high school groups of kids that go off and and do some sort of community service somewhere in the world. And I was trying to point myself out in the three trips i went i i think i had my shirt off in two of them i'm like what are you what are you doing Hoff? <laughs> again if anybody wants these you just make a nice donation to the church and we're happy to send you pictures of nick uh, at age 16 with his shirt off that go and serve wall is pretty cool actually that's uh the, part of the ethos of this church is that that high school short-term mission trip that they do oh yeah you um, can see people that now are old in the church when they were young in the yeah. church going on in those 19- trips 69 was the first year they sent one of those and the short-term mission craze didn't start in the United States really until the mid nineties. And so the fact that this particular church was doing these high school short-term mission trips all the way back to 1969, and they've done one every single year. And we have this wall in our church where you can see the group pictures from every year dating back to 1969. Yeah, that's that's cool. That I love that old church. It's been there forever. There are pictures of it at, in the Hastings Museum. Um, I think at one point it burned down and they had to rebuild it. Yep. There's a lot yep. of history there. I mean, I remember as a little kid going up in the rafters. I don't know who took us up there, but my dad and my uh, siblings got to go up and you walk on this tiny little plank above, like you fall off this, you're, you're gone. That's it. They might right. as well just wheel you to the front for your service. Cause that Porsche is not listening to this, right? Nick. I, yeah, I hope so. I, I need the listeners. <laughs> yeah. The, the, yeah. It's uh there, there's some cool spaces in the church. One of the other cool things uh, you mentioned the church it burned down in 1914 and you talked about, crawling around in the scout room and in, in the sort of the basement underneath the sanctuary. And there are still charred timbers there. Uh, when they rebuilt right? the church, they recycled some of the timbers because where else do you get timbers large enough to support a church? And right. those that had not burned through were reused and you can go down and actually find the old charred timbers. Oh, I'm sure there are catacombs and things like that down there that I, I didn't even find my way into. At some yeah. point, I got to a locked door and said, ah, there's no way forward here. But I, I, that's a cool place. So you were in Angels Aware at 12. Where was that? Where did you grow up? I grew up in Flagstaff, Arizona. Okay. And I grew up in a church that was uh, federated. It was Methodist and Presbyterian. We would alternate pastors every four to eight years. We'd have a Methodist pastor, then a Presbyterian pastor. And a church similar in many ways to first press Hastings, but with that, that ecumenical difference. And then, then I went to a Lutheran college for undergrad. So by the time I was 22, I considered myself a Protestant mutt because I had okay. been a Methodist and a Presbyterian and then a Lutheran for four years, but found my way back to the Presbyterian church. Now you may not be able to comment on this, but do you see a big distinction between them? Presbyterian, Lutheran, Methodist? Like to me, it was all, we're all Christians. Like let's just, we're all in the same car, like, or at least on the same road. Amen. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And um, I, you know, because of that experience of growing up in a federated church and then going to a Lutheran college, 
even though I'm a Presbyterian pastor, I, I think, goodness sakes, like we agree on 98%. Right. There's like 2% of difference. And, and unfortunately we've chosen to focus on the 2% of the difference instead of the 98% that we agree on. <laughs> and uh, that's what's led to the splintering of so many denominations all over the world. Uh, but at the end of the day, yeah, there's a, there's a Nazarene pastor here in town. And to be honest with you, normally a Nazarene pastor and a Presbyterian pastor wouldn't work together too much sure. uh, for whatever reason. But this guy and I are, are good friends and he's kind of a mentor of mine. And he says, Greg, you know, there's lots of congregations, but there's really only one church. And, yeah. uh, and so we find commonalities, we find ways we can work together and we maximize those. And so uh, since I've gotten here, I've been here for four years, we're doing a lot more work with other churches. Just we can all agree that children shouldn't go hungry. So when we put together, you know, a sandwich line to make peanut butter and jelly yes. sandwiches, we can invite other Christians out to help us make peanut butter and jelly sandwiches because we all agree kids shouldn't go hungry. Right. Right. And there's enough of that that we agree on enough of that commonality. We need to stop fighting over the stuff we disagree on. It is kind of silly. And I guess I just wasn't raised. You know, I think my mom was Presbyterian. My dad was uh, my dad was probably raised Methodist. I can't remember which it's so unimportant to me that I don't, I didn't even, I can't even recall because I just didn't see the importance in the distinction. Cause to be honest, uh, our minister out here who recently had to move on, um, I really enjoyed listening to him talk, but at no time sitting there, did I ever think I probably agree with this guy a hundred percent on everything. Right. It's like, he's right. just a guy like he's interpreting it as best he knows how he's trying to help me, but there are probably things that I'm going to be like, eh, I don't know about that. Yeah. And I think the Christian faith, there's some, there's some guardrails, right? There's certain things that, that fall within the realm of, of, of things we all need to agree on and believe. Sure. But then within that, that's a, it's a pretty wide road. Right. And, uh, I would, I would rather choose to, uh, cooperate with the other people driving on that road and stay within those guardrails than, uh, than say, no, 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 no. You're driving a Toyota and, and I'm driving a Honda and Honda owners can't get along with Toyota owners. Uh, but we're all going the same direction, right? Right, right. So. I'm so happy that you continued on my driving analogy. So often I put an analogy down and the other person's like, well, that's not great. <laughs> Maybe you'd be better having said this. So I'm glad that you ran with that. So growing up, you grew up in Arizona, like yep. spent your whole childhood there and then went yep. on to Tacoma. Tacoma. Am I making that up? No, good memory, Nick. You've done your research, man. Yeah. The Pacific Lutheran University in Tacoma, Washington. Okay. Tacoma, that's a... That's a shipping town, isn't it? It, it is a huge shipping town. Uh, yeah, there's just a little Lutheran college that was set up there by Lutherans 150 years ago and doing their thing. And uh, it was a great place, great place to go to school. And going there at that point, did you know your path? I didn't. I had been tagged, and this actually is, is possibly true of you too, Nick. Uh, <laughs> members of my church growing up thought I would be good in the ministry. And they okay. They encouraged me. They, they said, this is something you should do. And so I ran the opposite direction. <laughs> <laughs> right, uh, right. And I got to college. I was like, there's no way I'm studying religion or Christianity or anything like that. I, I, I'm not interested in going into the ministry. And, uh, and so I double majored in political science and Spanish and got really interested in, uh, in Latin America, uh, the sure. politics down there. But, but then I got pretty involved in doing development work down there. Uh, helping to work with local communities to break the cycle of poverty. So I got really invested in that. And that's, that's kind of the direction that, uh, that I started going. And I did that for a number of years and eventually started connecting that work I was doing in development with my faith, which was always there. 
right. it's like, oh, right. The reason I'm down here in Latin America trying to work with communities to break the cycle of poverty is, is because my faith compels me to do that. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and so that connection became tighter and tighter and tighter until in my early thirties, uh, I suddenly said, maybe I should formalize this a little bit more and go to seminary and become <laughs> a pastor. Well, it kind of makes sense, right? Uh, for someone that has a, I don't know, bleeding heart is the right term for it, but someone who wants to help people, you know, you want to help them now, you want to help them 10 years from now, and then you think, okay, what happens after that? Well, eventually there's death. How do you help them after that? How do you help them the whole way? So it kind of makes sense to have that sort of like, okay, well, that's the end goal. So let me just do this this way. And yeah. then go to seminary school. That makes sense to me. I hadn't thought of it that way, but that's, uh, that's not bad. I don't know if that was clear, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> and so do you speak Spanish then? I do. Yeah. Is that part of the reason I wanted to, uh, talk about, uh, this because one of our previous churches had, um, had a water organization that they were involved with that was called, I, I think it was called Life Water. And it was like for every bottle sold, uh, you know, a dollar goes to building a well somewhere. And I know that you do some things with, uh, Living Waters for the World. And that I think you said was in Guatemala. Is that they speak Spanish, yeah. Now, right? Yeah. Living Waters for the World is a great, uh, uh, Presbyterian water organization and they work in a lot of countries. Uh, I specifically serve on their board for their work in Guatemala. So they have a network of about 250 water systems in Guatemala. And so they, they train and equip teams in the United States to go down and, and help a community build uh, a water system so that people have access to a source of safe drinking water. Right. You know, whenever, whenever you travel to Mexico or Guatemala, people are like, don't drink the water. Right. And they're right because the water will make you sick. And, and that's true for the Mexicans and the Guatemalans too. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't often think about that. And so uh, by providing a community a source of safe drinking water, that's sort of the foundation for being able to start to break the cycle of poverty. Because once people are able to get safe drinking water, then kids aren't going to miss school because they're homesick with stomach problems. And people right. aren't going to work because they're homesick. And so it, it allows you to start to really build on that. It's such an important basic thing to have clean drinking water. And it's a punchline here. In fact, it was a punchline on track 17 of my comedy album when I went down to Mexico and, and came back with cryptosporidium. Um, cause you Crypto, think yeah, that's, the... that's the big one. <laughs> I went yeah, down there for a wedding. There were like 33 people down there for a wedding and 31 of us got it. <laughs> and I think the CDC was calling people like, what have you, what have you done? I was like, well, come look at my bed sheets. That's what I've done. Uh, it's <laughs> horrific. And, uh, so yeah, it's a punchline here when you can get away from it. It's a punchline. Yes. But for the people living there, and that seems like just like a no brainer. Let's get that done all over the globe. So that's really yeah, cool. It's, it's pretty remarkable too, because I, I started working for a water organization. Um, trying to think in like 2007. Uh, that one was called Healing Waters, and they're still doing really amazing work. And at that time, the statistic was that approximately uh, 1 billion people in the world lack access to safe drinking water. Wow. Um, and at the time, the UN set a goal to try to reduce that number. And there were tons of amazing water orgs out there working on this problem, each in their own unique way. And now that statistic is down to like 700 million. Okay. Uh, which, which is still a ton of people that should, should have access to safe drinking water. But the fact that we've reduced it by 300 million, um, mm-hmm. since 2007 in 13 years tells me that there's a will and there's a way. 
Yeah. Uh, and we can keep doing this work together and we can provide access to safe drinking water for more and more people. And then, and like you said, it's for us in the United States, it's a no brainer. We go to the tap, we turn on the water. We don't worry about whether or not it's going to make us sick. Right. Um, and that's not the reality for 700 million people living around the world. But, uh, but there are a lot of really great water orgs out there doing work to try to reduce, continue to reduce that number. And one of them is living waters to the world. I, I, like I said, I serve on the Guatemala board of that one, but um, I would say if this is something that you're passionate about or you have an interest in, learn about it. That You said the last church you worked at was working with Life Water. That's another great water org. You know, there's lots of great ones out there, but um, it's such a fundamental building block to try to uh, help improve people's lives and break the cycle of poverty. Yeah, that's really cool. And what, what do they need most? Do they need people to get involved or they need they need money? What helps that organization the most? Uh, for Living Waters of the World, it's it's both. Uh, so they can certainly use donations, and uh, you can go just Google Living Waters for the World, and the website's pretty uh, pretty good. Uh, but one of the cool parts about their model is that they train U.S. teams uh, in how to help install a water system. So you go to a they call it Clean Water U. It's like a camp. Uh-huh. It, it actually is a camp. It's a press Where is that? camp in in Mississippi. Okay. Uh, and so you sh- you go with a team from your church. You take four people. And you spend uh, uh, an extended weekend learning how to install these water systems and also how to help uh, a community uh, work with safe drinking water. And then you lead a short-term mission team from your church down and you install one of these water systems. And then you walk alongside that community for four or five years, making sure the system's up and running and that the, the community has this access to safe drinking water. So uh, if that's something that's of interest to you, certainly look it up. But they can also always use donations because they're, like I said, sure. they got a network of over a thousand water systems around the world that are uh, providing a source of safe drinking water for communities. How much of the problem is not having the drinking water in place and, and their sewage? How much is that tied into it? So that's a great question, Nick. So there's some that work in getting water to a place. So there, where there's water scarcity and you think about like in Africa, um, particularly Sahara and Sub-Saharan Africa, mm-hmm. uh, the water orgs there are drilling wells or boreholes because Currently, the community doesn't even have access to any water. Right. Um, the way that Living Waters for the World works is they go into a community that has water, but the water is contaminated. Okay. And so they're providing a way to clean the water so people have it. So typically, it's a community that will have water that's piped in, uh, either typically via piping or, or a well, but that that water is still making people sick. And so they're treating the water um, versus getting water to a community. And both of those things need to happen. So there are communities that need wells drilled. And there are communities that may have a source of water, but the water is contaminated, so it's got to be clean. And is this just a problem that is getting worse and worse when it's not uh, treated? Or like how people have been there for hundreds and thousands of years, how, how have they survived thus far? Yeah, that's a good question. A, a lot of folks, uh, if, if they can, they'll boil the water to okay. help, but that requires fuel. Uh, so eventually you deforest a place because you're constantly chopping wood to be able to boil your water, that sort of thing. So, right. um, and then also as populations grow and, and you mentioned sewage, you know, you think about this, if you build a, an outhouse or a latrine over a water pipe, but the water pipe is perforated on the top, then what leaks down from the outhouse or latrine <laughs> leaks into the water pipe. And then now your water main's contaminated and then you're getting cryptosporidium when you're in Mexico for a wedding. I always thought latrine was a funny name for like a redneck woman. <laughs> Just to have some guy yelling, latrine, would you get in here? <laughs> I don't know why I said that to Sarah one day and we just laughed. Um, 
cool. Yeah, check out Living Waters for the World. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna look into that because that's something that's seems like such a basic, not easy thing to do, but like such a basic thing people should have access to water. So I think that's a good yeah. start in helping humanity. Absolutely, and and also not political, right? We can all agree that kids should have access to safe drinking water and they shouldn't get sick from the water they drink, right? Right. So I, can, um, I agree. Two can, of us agree. This can unify the most conservative and the most liberal person to say, yeah, we're, we're all we're all on board with that. We're we're good. Yeah, people need should have safe drinking water. There you go. There you go. Um, Greg, I, we met probably. How long have you been in Hastings now? Four years. Four years. Okay, so we probably met early on just because my parents still go to your congregation, but we don't know each other all that well. Is it hard? I would imagine that it would be hard for all ministers and pastors. What's the, by the way, what's the right word? Either a pastor's fine. Pastor. Okay. We'll go with pastor. I I imagine it'd be hard. Can, can you have friends? Is that hard? Is it hard to find a friend? Are you just the guy, you know, like the guy with a truck that everybody asked to help him move an armoire? You, do you feel that like spiritual burden upon your personal relationships? That's a good question, Nick. Uh, it is, it, it is hard for pastors to have friendships in their local community. Uh, particularly with church members, yeah. right? Because you never know, am I wearing my pastor hat or am I wearing my friend hat? Uh, yeah. Can I, can I let loose a little bit and, uh, or, or do I need to, you know, and also, are you talking to me as your pastor or are you talking to me as your friend? Right. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard. I'll, I'll say one thing that's facilitated a little bit. Uh, we've got an associate pastor here at the church, Damon, uh, you've mm-hmm. met him. Uh, he also is the master brewer at one of the local breweries. Right. We, we went there. Uh, yes. Steeple brewery. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a funny church themed brewery too. The names of his beers are named after quirky church culture things too, which is a lot of fun. But, uh, I have an excuse to go down and drink beer because my associate pastor is brewing it. Okay. Yeah. And, and Damon has this vision. He's the, the place where the beer is being served should be a place where people are able to have open and honest conversations. Yeah. And, uh, and so he sees, he sees the beer as, as facilitating those things in addition to being just good quality beer to drink. And so, uh, being able to go have a beer with, uh, with my friends has actually helped facilitate that a little bit. So, so what I would say to you, if you're listening and you have a pastor, invite him out for a beer. Yeah. Cause that kind of like right away, just having a beer, even though, People get weird about beer and religion, but it's like, Jesus, there was always wine on the table. <laughs> I mean, he was turning water into wine. He's like, what? Right. he was taking the Guatemalans water and he was like, no, we're going to make wine. You guys are plenty hydrated. We're fine. Uh, we'll let them deal with that in the 2000s. Um, yeah, but having a beer, then that would immediately cut it. Although I would say there would be a second of like, my pastor's drinking a beer. Yes, that's okay. Like, but just to check it in your, your head for a second. Do you ever yeah. feel weird about that? You're drinking a beer there and somebody from the congregation walks in. Is there a moment in your stomach that's like, I hope this is, hope they don't think poorly of me? Well, if they're walking into a bar, then they shouldn't have a problem seeing their pastor in a bar, right? Good point. So Good point. The, the, the place where this has caught me has been, uh, the Russ's market. Right. <laughs> you were I have, your local crack then. <laughs> I have yet to go into Russ's market when I've been buying a beer or wine or liquor where I have not run into a parishioner. It has not happened in four years. And, and I don't go buy beer or wine or liquor every time I'm in Russ's market. This is our local grocery store, right? Right, right. And I don't buy beer, wine or liquor every time I'm there. But every time that I'm there doing that, I always run into church members. 
Yep. And I always wonder, are they judgmentally peeking into my cart wondering why it is that I have a six pack of Corona in there? Right. And if they are, so be it. I, you know, I'm a human being too. Um, yes. So. That's so funny though that every single time and now, now it's probably become a thing where you just know it as you're putting it into the cart. It, you're like, it is. Where are they? I, yeah, I've been here four years and I, I have yet to like to the point where I'm like, should I be? buying my beer or my liquor like somewhere else not at the grocery store because because if somebody runs into me in the liquor store buying beer or liquor then they're there for the same reason so they right. obviously shouldn't be casting judgment but if they're in the grocery store they just have a cart full of vegetables and they're uh-huh. just and uh-huh. there's the pastor who's got the two bottles of wine and the six pack of corona <laughs> and the bottle of bourbon like what's going on greg yep there's a there's a little bit of like which hat are you wearing i can i can see that and how long have you been married uh, 20 years in February, 20 years in February. Were you a pastor when you were married? I was not. And my wife and I met my freshman year of college when I was running away from the ministry. Oh, okay. And so as she points out, like this was not part of the contract. <laughs> was, was she also running at that time? Uh, she didn't grow up in the church. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, so she didn't have a problem with it, but hadn't grown up in the church. And so when we got married, um, my in-laws remind me, my aspiration was to be a senator or something. Sure. Um, I see that. And so they're like, senator, pastor, like what happened here? But, uh, <laughs> but it was, it was about, it was about 10 years into our marriage that, uh, that I kept feeling this nudge or this call. And, um, actually it's kind of a cool story. Jessica wrote me a letter. Okay. She said, Greg, I see these gifts in you. Uh, you've talked about this now for a couple of years. Uh, and then basically it was, it's now or never, bub. <laughs> okay. We're at a point in our lives where if you're going to make this decision, this is going to change our life trajectory. And so make this decision and I'll support you in it. And I see these gifts in you or stop talking about it because <laughs> we've got other things to do in life. Wow. And- that was because she was uh, she was a high school English teacher, and then she went on and got her master's degree and was an assistant principal at a high school. And so she was on this track in public education administration. And the idea of having uh, a high school principal and a pastor in the same family would not have worked because those are both jobs that are extremely time consuming and energy consuming. Sure. And so it's kind of like if I'm going to continue on this track of becoming a high school principal, then ministry is probably not going to work for us. And so. If that's what you're feeling called to, let's talk about it. And, uh, and so her letter got us to sit down and talk about it. And that's sort of what, what moved us in that direction. That's so cool. So you said that was about five years into your marriage or at what point? Um, let's see. So we got married when I was 23 and that conversation was when I was like 30. So seven years into our marriage. About seven years in. And at that point, uh, would you have considered her a Christian at that point? Yeah. Uh, she hadn't been baptized. Uh, and so, and once I made the decision to go to ministry, she goes, okay, I'm going to be your first baptism. Okay. Uh, but at that point we had been, uh, we've been volunteering at churches, uh, and attending churches and uh-huh. she was an educator. So she, she and I were church youth group leaders and that sort of thing. And so she definitely, uh, was, was growing in her faith and, and understanding her faith more. But as, as, as somebody who did not grow up in the church. And so that's a, that's actually a huge gift to me in ministry too, because I have, I have somebody who still has slightly outsider eyes uh-huh. and she'll, she'll be like, you're doing this weird thing in church and it makes no sense to me. <laughs> Either explain why you're doing it or stop doing it. <laughs> yeah. Cause that's so often we do these things just because, well, they've always been done or something. And it takes kind of like that outside eye to be like, mm, is that the way it should be? 
Yeah. Well, I mean, the, like we Presbyterians always sing uh, this song called the Gloria Patri. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's like, why, why do we always sing that song? What's, what's the ex? Well, we're, we're giving thanks to God after we take the offering. Well, right. But does anybody ever sit and think about that? Does anybody ever explain that? Like, shouldn't we, you know, rather than just sing a rote song every Sunday that means nothing to me. Right. Either explain to me why we're singing the song or switch it up a little bit. <laughs> that makes sense. And, and so, uh, I've done both. I, I both explain and I switch it up. And, okay. uh, I, I think the church is better for it. And, and so when she's got these outside eyes, uh, sort of looking in, that's, that's been a real gift to me as a, as a pastor, as a leader in the church, but I think also to our church as a whole. Gotcha. No, that, that's, that's invaluable. I would say to have somebody like that, especially living in your home that can just like, you know, push you in the right direction or, and, and there, or even if it doesn't like push you away from it, like kind of help you get a firmer base on why something is. Cause yeah, yeah. we can fall into those habits. Um, I, you know, I grew up in the church and a lot of it was just instilled in me. You know, you go to Sunday school, you're told this, okay, this is what I believe because I was told this. And then you get out into the world and it's, you know, in college, I wouldn't say that I ran away from the faith, but just kind of took a back seat. Like somebody asked me, are you a Christian? I say, yes, but I didn't attend church at that time. And uh, my wife was very much involved in the church. She's very, it was very important to her even in, in college days. So that, that came where we were talking about things and, and you start to, you know, ask yourself, okay, what do I believe? This is what I was taught growing up. Now, what do I believe? And how do I, how do I write that ship? How do I settle with that? And especially in the comedy world, there's so many, you know, agnostic, atheists, things like that. And because the Bible and faith, it's a pretty big punching bag. I mean, there's a lot to be made fun of. And it's, it's kind of ridiculous almost to believe anything. You have to have faith because you're not going to be able to f- follow the facts all the way. At least I've never been able to do that. My wife's one of those people that will study religion and study, okay, this is where Jesus lived. This is what happened. Okay, these people actually existed. This is their story. So she'll, you know, follow the footsteps as far as they go and then look in that direction. And then that's where her faith comes in. I almost have to like take faith a step further because I don't know who to believe, but I know what I feel. Does that make sense? Yeah. Is that? It does. It does. And so like, the place where I came to peace with some of this uh, was reading uh, Aquinas. Uh, Thomas Aquinas wrote this book called the Summa Theologica. And what he does okay. is he goes through and he argues points. So he'll present a question. He'll argue one side of it. And then he'll argue the other side of it. And then he'll come to a conclusion. Okay. And he does this with all of these different theological points. And so it's, if, if that's how your brain works, it's worth reading. But uh, when he got to the, the Holy Trinity, like, that's a mystery. Right. And so he presents the question about the Trinity. What is the Trinity? Argues one side of it, argues the other side of it. And then Aquinas, after having written this volume called the Summa goes, you know what? At some point we have to accept it as a mystery. It's right. faith. That's what faith is. And, and like the Trinity is that way, right? You can use some metaphors for it, but they don't really get at the heart of what it's about. Mm-hmm. And when Aquinas gave me permission to go, yeah, I got to accept that one on faith. I'm, okay, well, if Aquinas, this great theological thinker, eventually gets to that point, uh, it's okay for me to get to that point on occasion too. I'm I'm a very logical person, and right. uh, I was a debater in high school and college. Me too. Um, Not in college, in high school. Okay. Uh, really? 
Lincoln cool. Douglas. LD, man. That's, <laughs> I, I went to nationals. I don't know. Did, We're did not nerds. To... We fight with words. I never went to nationals. Uh, I went to state a couple times. I did all right. Yeah. So I was an, I was an LD debater in high school and then I, I did parliamentary style debate in college. And so like I, I like to make logical arguments and, um, and there's room for that in faith. Uh, particularly Presbyterians, we we are we are people of the head as much as we are people of the heart. Mm-hmm. But uh, ultimately, there are things that we just have to accept on faith and know and trust, you know, and uh, and that's okay. And, and it's okay to to have doubts. It's okay to have questions about that. And uh, one of the things that I say to the church a lot is I I encourage people to bring their questions and I encourage people to bring their doubts. And yeah. I'm not here to answer every question and resolve every doubt. Um, I'm, I'm here to sit in those questions with you and to sit in those doubts with you and let's, let's talk about them. Let's, uh, let's see. And, uh, we may not reach the same conclusions or we may not reach a conclusion at all. And that's, uh, that's okay. That's okay okay. because we're engaging. We're, we're trying to understand more about who this God is and what this God, what call this God has on our lives. And so we just keep at it. There's a phrase we use in the Presbyterian church. We, we say that the, the faith is reformed and always reforming according okay. to the word of God. And so it's always an ongoing process. Uh, we're always going to be in our lives. Our faith will be constantly reforming. Our understanding of God will be constantly reforming. And our call is to continue on that journey and to also look for other fellow sojourners on that journey and engage in those conversations. That's probably the biggest hurdle to belief in God is people will get a couple doubts and then they say, well, then now I don't, I don't believe it. Yeah. That sounds ridiculous. A guy walked on water, get out of town. I mean, there's a guy in the sky, like molding bowling balls together. And those are our planets. Come on, get out of here. Like it's a, it's a huge pill to swallow. It is. But, but I don't think that the, yeah, I don't think the doubts are are bad. Um, I, I really invite those and uh yeah, it's, it's funny. I, I lead a Bible study every week here at the church and I have a very scientifically minded person. So we, when we get to a Bible story that's got a miracle in it, he wants to have a logical explanation for it. Right. So we read in the Old Testament about uh, the Israelites wandering in the desert and God provides manna for them mm-hmm. uh, so that they don't die of starvation. Okay. Right. And uh, the Bible, the Hebrew word describes a, a white flaky substance coating the ground. And so right. this scientific guy who attends my Bible study has this science. Well, you know, the, the dew came and then the condensed with the salt and the da, 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 da. And so you end up with a white flaky substance that provides sustenance for people. I was like, okay, I'm good with explaining it that way. I'm also good with accepting that God can do whatever God wants. And so if you want to think of it as wonder bread on the ground, by all means, think of it as wonder bread. If you want to think of it as a scientific explanation, I'm okay with that. And I'm okay living in the tension between those two things. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it's in that tension where we grow. Yeah. That's interesting. I, I used to not be okay with living in that tension. I, I used to really, really bother me. And then I would second guess everything. And over the last 10 to 15 years, I've become a little easier with it. Just saying, okay, that's one thing I'm going to just take on faith. I wouldn't feel this way. I feel like, I would be a horrible person if there was no God. I feel like we would just be monkeys robbing each other and, you know, murder all every single day. <laughs> Cause you have those feelings, you have those base impulses and then just something takes over. You're like, okay, no, I, uh, you gotta be a good person and not because you want to 
go to heaven or something, but just because you like, that's what's right. Yeah. I don't think, I, I don't think I'd have that feeling if there wasn't I, a creator. That's, that's a good, I mean, that's a good thing. And particularly this, this, what I'll call the law of love or the love of neighbor. If that, if your faith instills that in you and causes you to behave in ways that are good towards humanity, that's a faith that's worth it to me. Right. And, uh, I'll work with that. (laughs) (laughs) How do you respond to people? Because I had a good friend who this was his big question. He grew up in the church, was a campus crusade. And then what's, what's the one that they have? Maybe it's campus crusade. What, what's the collegiate level of people that help uh, with campus crusade? There's also intervarsity Christian fellowship. It might've been, might've been that anyway, he was really involved both him and his wife. And then they went on a trip to uh, Asia and they lost their faith there because they said so much of what we believe is dependent on where we grew up. And so how would you respond to someone that, you know, raises that question? Like the only reason I'm not Hindu is because I didn't grow up in India. That's a really interesting, uh, it's an interesting way to, to sort of drift away from the Christian faith, because one of the unique things about the Christian faith um, is that it is not dependent upon a particular culture. Mm-hmm. or a particular geography, or a particular language. And that makes it distinct from most other world religions, right? And so the, the other two major world religions are Hin- Hinduism and Islam, uh, both of which are dependent upon a particular culture, a particular language, and a particular geographic places that are holy sites that are um, must be visited by adherents of that religion. Mm-hmm. Whereas Christianity doesn't have any of that. And what Christianity has done since its inception 2000 years ago is adapted to the cultures that it's in. Right. And so you see a manifestation of Christianity in Latin America or in countries in Africa or even in countries in Asia. And it looks different. Uh, the, the core beliefs are the same. The guardrails, right, are the same to go back to our, our analogy. But with, within the, between the guardrails, it manifests itself a whole lot differently based upon the culture that it's in. And that's a unique thing to Christianity among all the world religions and that it can adapt to the culture that it's in. And the manifestation of God and the understanding of God and the appearance of God can look different culture to culture. One of the things that I collect are images of Jesus and images of Mary that look like the places where they were produced. And so rather than Jesus looking like me or Ewan McGregor, uh, <laughs> you see that famous portrait of Jesus that looks somewhat like Ewan McGregor. And then there was a portrait of him that came out during the star Wars in his Jedi garb. Oh, really? And people started thinking that was a portrait of Jesus. Uh, I didn't, I didn't see that comparison, but I could see it though. Anyways, yeah, I'll, I'll see if I can find it and send it to you. <laughs> it's pretty funny because, and the, the meme was that somebody, somebody's grandma had a picture of you and McGregor sitting on her, <laughs> but, but they, they thought it was Jesus because right. it looked like that very famous portrait of Jesus we see that looks very Eurocentric, right? Yeah. Jesus is, is white skinned with lighter colored hair and blue eyes kind of and a beard. But, um, I, I have different, uh, paintings of Jesus from Africa where Jesus uh, looks like he's a native of Africa and from Latin America where Jesus looks like he's from Latin America and, and from Asia. And I, I collect these things because I think they're meaningful in that sort of Jesus means something to the people in the culture that they're in. Right. Uh, it's not a white Eurocentric Jesus or even a Palestinian Jesus. Uh, that Jesus, uh, the, that's the, the miracle of the in, incarnation is that God came to earth as human but not necessarily 
as a European American human or anything else, right? Right, right. You use the word uh, Christianity adapts to the culture that it's in. In your experience, have you ever seen an example of where Christianity attempted to adapt, but you thought, mm, maybe that's a little too far. Maybe we've, we've jumped the guardrails, so to speak. Yeah. I feel like a lot a of people feel that way about, you know, homosexuality and, and same sex marriage. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a fair question. And so that's, that's why I did point out those guardrails of what I'll call Christian orthodoxy. Right. And right. so it can fall within these realms. If it falls outside these realms, it starts to drift away from the core tenets of Christianity. One example uh, that I've experienced doing global mission work is is in Africa in cultures that uh, have polygamy, right. um, and and Christianity pretty narrowly puts us into saying, you know, marriage is between two. It's a covenant relationship between two consenting adults, right? Uh, and so polygamy falls outside those guardrails. And so the if the church adapts to polygamy, has it gone a step too far? Uh, and and the answer generally is yes. Yeah, it has. Uh, around the human sexuality issues, uh, that's a tougher one. And that's one that a lot of churches are struggling with. Uh, the Presbyterian Church USA uh, wrestled with this um, and is one of five or six large denominations in the United States that um, has wrestled with it in the last 10 years. And uh, in 2012, uh, we voted that we would ordain uh, gay clergy. Mm-hmm. Um, is that 2012, 2010? 2010. And then in uh, 2014, uh, we voted that on a church-by-church basis, uh, churches and pastors could decide whether or not they wanted to perform gay weddings. Okay. And so they- they're leaving that decision to the local churches and to the local pastors. And they're allowing the the churches to make those decisions based upon their cultural context, kind of like I was talking about the Christianity adapting within the culture. Um, And what the Presbyterian church did is it, it said the guardrails are wide enough to allow this based upon each church and each pastor's uh, decision. And we have a phrase in in Presbyterianism that Jesus Christ is Lord of the conscience. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so ultimately that is where my conscience lies is with Jesus Christ. And that's where, the church's conscience lies and each person will have to decide within, within their own mind, what's the realm of Christian orthodoxy, where are the guardrails in that sense? Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. We were talking about it before this whole pandemic and we were talking about it and I just kind of thought, you know, it goes back to that word adapt. It just kind of feels like there were so many times the Bible talks about, and then, a, you know, the spirit of the Lord came down to somebody and talked to them. You know, we haven't had any, well, there's nothing in the Bible from the last 2000 years of that happening, you know, but certainly he's made his presence known, you know, made people's hearts change where they need to. Certainly there's some room for shifting. Well, it's, it gets back to what I was saying, the, the reformed and always reforming according to the word of God. So the, the guardrails, right, are the word of God. And, but within that, the church is reformed and always reforming. It's, it's recognizing that changes have occurred in society. And like women's ordinations, a, a perfect example of this, right? Up until the 1950s, uh, most churches around the world and in the United States didn't believe that women could be ordained as pastors. Okay. Uh, didn't believe that women could be called to ministry. And, uh, God revealed God's self in new ways to the church and the church reformed and said, we, read this scripture in a particular way up until this point, but perhaps this was not the right reading of the scripture. And so we will, we will reform our understanding of this particular belief and we will allow women to become ordained. 
and there was a series of uh, successive series of churches that that made that shift. The Presbyterian Church was one of them to allow for ordination of female clergy. And now we have women who lead our churches and are doing a fine job of it. Uh, yeah. And uh, I think there was probably there was a female associate pastor at this church when you were here. Uh, yes. At some point. Cheryl. Cheryl. Yep. And so, uh, you know, that, and that's one of those where the church sat and, and continued to read the same scripture they've been reading for 2000 years, but also listened to how God was speaking to them at that moment. And God spoke to them and said, listen to the spirit. And if the spirit is put on this woman's heart that she should be ordained, listen to her, listen to her story. Do you see that the spirit is working through her? And eventually the church said, yeah, I think the spirit is working through this woman. She should be ordained. And so then you had the Methodist church and the Lutheran church and the Episcopal church and the Presbyterian church all in a matter of about 10 years, make a shift on that particular uh, belief and allow for the ordination of women. Now there are still plenty of churches out there who don't ordain women. And, and it's one particular scripture in the book of Timothy uh, that is, is the hang up on that particular one. Um, that's, that's the thing. And I, I wanted to talk to you, like how, how bulletproof is the Bible? Like we, at a certain point, we have to accept the work of the people before us, right? You, we weren't around when, when the book was being written, but I know, or at least I'm under the assumption that there are other books of the Bible that didn't make the cut. That's correct. And, and there's like a, uh, a council that decided this is what's going to be in the Bible. And you're like, how much do we accept? Okay. They knew what they were doing. So we'll just move forward from here. We'll stand on their shoulders and go. And how much do we say, well, what was Timothy drunk that night? What did he, was, was he like 98% on board? And then he's like, didn't quite hear it right. How much of the Bible can you absolutely say is just infallible? Yeah, the the words infallible and inerrant are words that are uh words that are very challenging to me. What is that uh, second one? Inerrant. Without error? Is that without that error? Okay. Yeah. Um and so we do believe that the Bible is is the word of God. And we also are able to have tools available to us to interpret the word of God. Right. And and those tools get developed over time. And so one of the things that I had to do as a Presbyterian pastor was take biblical Greek and biblical Hebrew. Um, and so one of the things that I can do when I'm reading a scripture, if I come across a word that makes me scratch my head, I can go back to the Hebrew or the Greek and look at what the original root word was for that. And then I can spend some time. OK, well, we in, in this version of the Bible, we translated this word as this. But uh, in Hebrew, this also means this and this. What if we instead, rather than saying, for example, the, the word for Holy Spirit is also the word for wind uh, in Hebrew. Okay. And so um, you can read in Genesis 1 that God's spirit moved over the earth or God's wind moved over the earth. Well, that changes things, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and every time you encounter the word spirit or wind in the Old Testament, it's the same word. It's ruach. Uh, and you got to question, okay, why did the translators make it spirit in this uh this verse and they made it wind in this verse and some of it makes sense some Uh of it you're like well yeah clearly they're talking about wind because it knocked someone over but could the spirit knock someone over oh sure and so as as we have developed uh our understanding of of god's word we're able to develop these tools to help understand it better and so like the interpretation of that uh that bible verse in timothy about whether or not women should or shouldn't be church leaders Right. The biblical scholars that I read 
uh, that led the Presbyterian Church in the direction that we did about ordaining women, said it's important to read the scripture in the context in which it was written. Mm-hmm. And so you have to read the verse right before and right after Timothy said that, and then the verse before and after that. And then you also need to know a thing or two about first century Palestinian society. Okay, was was Timothy speaking about a particular context, or was this a general statement overall for all women for all times? And what the scholars have determined who believe in women's ordination was that Timothy was writing for a particular church in a particular city where women were particularly unruly. And so Timothy was saying, those women shouldn't be church leaders. <laughs> right? More specifically, my sister should not be a church leader. I- I'm not going to ask You don't know Lena which sister I'm talking about. about. You don't know which sister. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, and so th- that was sort of the biblical historical scholars were looking at it within the context in which it was written. And, okay. uh, Timothy wasn't addressing a universal women for all time should never be leading churches. Timothy was addressing a particular community at a particular time in particular history. And so should we take that particularity and apply it universally? And the outcome was no. No, we believe there are other scriptures that would point towards women being fine church leaders. And in fact, there are. Uh, yeah. You can read other parts of the New Testament where there were women in leadership roles in churches that were lauded by Paul or lauded by Jesus. And so why we're hung up on this one particular scripture in Timothy uh, when we have other witnesses within the same Bible that suggests something different. And so our, it's back to earlier conversation, living in the tension, right? Living in the doubts and saying, okay, well, this scripture says this, this one says this, let's step into this tension and spend some time talking about it. And let's use the tools we have available to us to talk about it. Interesting. Yeah. I like that. Um, I I know we've already been talking for almost an hour. So I, I want to ask you just a few more questions and then let you get back on with your day. Uh, but a big point of contention oftentimes, and and I think now more than ever, people are dealing with it on a global scale, is uh, the role of pain when it comes to thinking of God and how if, if you know, we're this creation down here and he loves us, why would we be allowed to go through such pain? Why so much death and and cancer and horrible things happening to people daily? Like how... How do you square yourself with that in terms of a loving God and an all-knowing God? You're going to ask me this at the very end of an hour, saying we have a limited amount of time. We <laughs> you have 30 whole, seconds. Go. Do a whole hour on this one. <laughs> so, um, I'll, I'll take it up a level. The the, the question I think you're asking, uh, biblical scholars or the, theologians call theodicy. It's called the justification of God. So, okay. we believe three truths about God, right? We believe that God is loving. Or God is love. Uh-huh. God is good in that sense. We believe that God is all powerful, right? We say that God is omnipotent. Mm-hmm. And then we also acknowledge that evil exists in the world. But if God is love and God is all powerful, couldn't God take care of evil for us? Right. And that question, theodicy about the justification of God is one that, that scholars have wrestled with since our understanding of God. And it's one that we still wrestle with today, and it's one that I wrestle with. And prior to World War II, most, and I'll say European biblical scholars, uh, they fudged, because uh, you got to fudge on one of these three things, right? Because God can't be good and love. God can't be all-powerful and 
then bad things happen, right? Children die of cancer. Earthquakes happen in Haiti that kill 100,000 people in one swoop. It can't be reconciled with the fact that God is good or God is love and God is all powerful. Right. So you got to fudge on one of these three things or not fudge, but you got, you got to wrestle with them. So yeah. prior to World War II, most theologians sort of fudged on the evil exists in the world. Mm-hmm. Like God is all powerful and God is good or God is love and bad things happen, but really there's not that much evil in the world. And then World War II happened. And the Holocaust happened. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, these theologians who had staked their claim on that question had to rethink their theology. Because now there was very clear evidence of evil being present in the world. And so what do we do with that? So then which of these other two do we have to wrestle with? Is God not love or is God not all powerful? Because we now acknowledge that evil absolutely exists in the world. Any any mechanization of death that can kill millions of people demonstrates there's evil in the world. Right. And so which of these other two then are we going to fudge on? And theologians are still wrestling with this question today, Nick. And, okay. and I will say that I wrestle with this question uh, on a daily basis, both in my own life, as well as in the life of my congregation and in the life of the world that I see. And I don't necessarily have an answer. What I do believe is not that God causes those evil things to exist. I don't believe God desires for God's people to suffer. I don't believe God desires for 100,000 Haitians to die in an earthquake or for children to die of cancer. I don't think God causes that to happen. What I do believe is that God is with us in the midst of those crises. God is with us in the midst of that chaos. God accompanies us and God walks with us. Uh, God mourns with us. God weeps with us. Um, and then God celebrates with us when we have successes in life. Um, it doesn't resolve that theodicy question, but it's it's where I live um, on a daily basis with my own church and in my own life as well. Yeah. Okay. I can see that. It, I, I try to sometimes equate it to my children. And, you know, if I wanted, I could carry them everywhere so they don't ever fall. You know, I could carry them. I could do that. Until they're a certain age, and then I'd have to put them down. But I could carry them so they, okay, you're not going to trip on that cement. But I let them do that, and sometimes they fall. And so does that mean I don't love them? Does that mean I couldn't have carried them? No, I, I could have, but you got to let them live their own life. I, I don't know if that even satisfies it a little, but in my head, somehow it does. Yeah, no, and that, and that gets into one of these theological concepts that we talk about with free will, right? So God loves us. And God also gives us free will to make the decisions we're going to make. And so sometimes we're going to make stupid or even evil decisions right. um, as humanity. And so how do we reconcile that? Where Where is God in the midst of that? And And my goal is to look for where God is in the midst of that. Even in those stupid or evil decisions we may or may not make, um, God will will come into that and seek to redeem and reconcile within those broken situations. And that's that's where I find God. Okay. I have two questions left for you. Uh, one, and you can take your time on this if you want. Uh, what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, you know, my dad passed away in October. I don't know if you knew that. Um, I did not know that. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. It, thank you. It was, uh, not COVID related. It was a, it was a sudden freak accident, uh, that happened. He was 71 and pretty healthy. Uh, but my dad, uh, lived his life by the philosophy, just make the world a better place than you found it. Okay. Uh, and that was who he was. And he embodied that all 71 years of his life. And I think that that is the best advice that I have been given is just to seek to make the world a better place than I found it. 
And I'm going to do that in my own little corner. I'm going to do that in how I raise my daughter. I'm going to do that in how I lead my church. And I hope that everybody else seeks to make the world a better place than they found it as well. If everybody did that, it would echo throughout. Be a pretty good place right now. Indeed. Right? Some people aren't cleaning up their own messes. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> okay, here's my final question. If the Spirit of God came to you tonight, middle of the night, let's say, let's say your wife's at the refrigerator, so she doesn't see this. She, she's getting some, she's getting a midnight snack. Spirit of God comes down to you and says, Greg, been a good run, but in 30 days, the world is over. I'm wiping it. Uh, I'm coming down. Everybody's done. You got 30 days left, psh, disappears and you 100% buy in. That was, that was God. And then your wife comes back. She's got a sandwich in her hand. You're like, what do you do? Do you tell her? How do you live your life those last 30 days? I guess is the question. You just love. You yeah. love people. You, you don't live it any different than you should be on a daily basis, right? The most important guardrails of the Christian life is what Jesus calls the double love commandment. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, upon these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So every other rule in the Bible that you find needs to fall within loving God and loving your neighbor as yourself. And I hope that I live my life in such a way that even if the world was to end in 30 days, people would know me by my love. And I hope they would, I hope that I'm inspiring others to live their lives in the same way. That's good. Now, follow up. Would you preach about it on Sunday? Would you tell the congregation? I think I would. I think I would. <laughs> I check with Jessica first. And what Jessica would say to me is, Greg, was that really the Holy Spirit or was that indigestion? <laughs> would she still eat the sandwich while you're telling her? <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and then I would have to spend some time deciding whether that was really the Holy Spirit or whether that was just indigestion. And then if I decided it was the Holy Spirit, sure, I would, I would share that. But gosh, Nick, the, the history is littered with false prophets making proclamations about the end of the world. And yeah. I am highly skeptical of, uh, those types of statements. I, the world will end someday, but Jesus pretty clearly says we will know neither the day nor the hour. And so anyone who claims to know the day or the hour gets a heavy dose of skepticism for me, even if it was myself. Oh yeah. Yeah. You'd, you'd stew for like three days at least on whether least. or not you even believe that. I would wait. I would, I would wait for another sign. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Can you send another guy down here? <laughs> <laughs> send, send someone else. Send someone from my childhood. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, cool, Greg. I, I really appreciate you taking the time to sit down with me. It's been a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Nick.